opened up your Bible to Genesis 3 yet, I would encourage you to do so. If you want to follow along with a paper Bible and you don't have one, there's ones probably in the seats near you. It's also going to be projected up there, and you can follow along that way. We are on message two of a three-part series of the fall from Genesis, and um, this is a passage where, if we're honest about it, we could spend two months on this passage and not hit everything that there is to find in it. And it's not hyperbole to say that this passage describes the moment that changed everything for everybody and everything in the entire history of the world. It's a big statement, isn't it? A moment that changed everything for everybody and everything in the entire history of the world. I was thinking that's a pretty strong statement, but when you think of the magnitude of what is taking place in this passage, it's probably not strong enough of a statement in reality. You know, when we think of our Bibles, we typically break them down into two main sections. Most people with even an introductory understanding of the of biblical things get this. So what are those two main sections? Awesome. You guys walked right into my trap. Um, if you really think about it, the Bible does break into two sections, but they're very, very disproportionate in length to one another. There's Genesis 1 and 2, and then there's the rest of the Bible. That's the two sections that the Scriptures break. Think about it. You have perfect God who created a perfect world and a place where this unique creature he called man, the only part of creation that he designates as being created in his image. And everything is perfect for them, including perfect, unbroken, never-ending access to this creator, God. There were not a whole lot of laws that were needed to govern society, nor did we need them, because mankind was untainted up into this so you didn't even need things like the Ten Commandments at this point because people didn't know what it meant to covet thy neighbor's goods. So they didn't need to be told not to. They didn't know what murder was. We see that first show up in the next chapter. So they didn't need to be told not to. They didn't need to be commanded not to commit adultery. Um, well, because there was just one man and one woman and that would have been impossible. But still, their hearts didn't know what that meant. So they didn't have to be told not to. It just was not a part of their nature at this time. And if things had continued to progress like intended, rather than taking the sharp downturn and decline, you wouldn't need to have things like speed limit signs, nuclear peace treaties, environmental protection laws, racial tension, Roe versus Wade, hate crimes. Those things would have never had to exist because they're not necessary in the perfect world of Genesis chapters 1 and 2. You don't need laws to temper man's depravity when man's depravity had not yet entered into the equation. And since then, we've had Genesis 3 and everything else. It's as Milton referred to in his classic, Paradise Lost. There, it's not saying that there's not still beauty in the world because we know that there is. 
But there is not one thing in this world that has not been tainted by the effects of sin. And I was thinking through that statement, and just because whenever somebody tells me there's not one thing, I'm that guy in the room that has to come up with the exception. So I was trying to think of something like, what is the most basic thing that I could think of? And I thought of something as simple as like a blade of grass. Well, a blade of grass eventually grows into a lawn, and if not taken care of, or taken care of like the way I take care of my lawn, um, that, that turns into a jungle, which then has all of your neighbors getting around and gossiping about you. And um, now your blade of grass just caused them to sin. So even that blade of grass is there. Or how about a grain of sand? There was a girl in my youth group growing up that got a, a, a grain of sand underneath her contact lens. And she ended up having an eye infection that was pretty severe. So something as minute as a grain of sand. We can't even say that's been untainted. By the, or the majestic mountains. I used to live in Leadville, Colorado. It's the highest elevated town in the United States. It sits at 10200 at its low point. And it would be weekly. You would hear about somebody who would die from going backcountry skiing because they were looking for fresh powder or they would be subjected to the exposure on the mountains. And I won't keep going, but if you want to think about it, like you're welcome to come and grab me after the service and tell me, you know what, I, I know this one thing that's been untainted by sin. And it's one of the rare answers where you can't even give Jesus to, right? Because Jesus was sinless, but he sure did feel the effects of sin, didn't he? So um, I don't think that you're going to be able to come up with an answer. And I won't keep going because actually Romans 8 did the work for me. It says, For creation longs with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. Meaning every part of creation is groaning, saying, Jesus, come back and make this new again. For any of you who, who thought um, and you want to insist that the Bible breaks down to just New and Old Testament, I want you to consider how this passage is structured. There's a law. Just don't eat that tree over there. There's rebellion against the law. We began to look at that last week. There's a curse that comes from breaking the law. And then we get down to verse 15, which we'll briefly touch on this week and really hit on next week, they speak of the one who would come and destroy evil, destroy the devil, destroy the works of the devil, and liberate us from the curse. So you have shadows of the New Testament truth right there in Genesis chapter 3. It's called the Proto-Evangelon, the first gospel message. And I won't continue, but I'm convinced that there are two very disproportionate parts of the Bible. Perfection in paradise, Genesis 1 and 2. God's redemptive plan unfolding simultaneously to the impact of the fall being felt throughout his creation. So as we get back ready to dive in to Genesis 3, Genesis 3 actually breaks down pretty neatly into three parts. You have the temptation in Genesis 3, 1 through 6. We covered that last week. You have the fall, Genesis 3, 6 through 15. We're going to cover that 
this week. And then you have the curse, Genesis 3, 14 through 24, and we're going to cover that next week. And with each of these, the temptation, the fall, and the curse, we're going to look at the hero, the one shining jewel, the one bit of good news in the midst of the bad news, the one who came to restore that which was broken by sin. So enough of the framework of the passage. Now we're going to dig into the actual verses. So verse 6 is kind of key here because it contains the progression of the temptation and how it unfolded. Look with me at verse 6. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desired to be made one wise, she took of the fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now, I don't want to assume that everybody here understands this. So I'm going to break down something to you because I think it's pretty important because I didn't understand this until I was actually a few years into my Christian faith. I even had a couple of years of Bible college under my belt and didn't understand this. But temptation is not the same thing as sin. I need you to get that for you to understand the way this passage is really supposed to work. This comes up most often when I counsel with people with lust issues. Look, acknowledging that somebody is a pretty woman or a woman acknowledging that someone's a handsome man is not sin. To admire the craftsmanship of a beautifully engineered car is not sin. To pray that the Lord would open up some window of financial assistance in a season where things are tight and you're barely keeping your head above water is not sin. It's when we act on that temptation that it becomes sin. And I'll just use the same examples that I just went from. When you go from acknowledging in your mind that somebody is attractive to taking that second and third and fourth glance for the sake of feeding your lust issues behind that attraction, then it becomes a heart issue and it's sin. I used to tell my youth group kids when I was a youth pastor, it was during those years where those sweatpants with like some silly word written across the butt were popular, like pink. And I would tell them, you're never going to read something edifying written across the butt of somebody's sweatpants. It's not like, you know, I need to just take one more look because I think that had Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 written on it. This, that's not going to ever happen. It's, it's always just going to take temptation and then lead to the heart issue that's going to yield to sin. When you go from admiring the craftsmanship of that flying automobile to then saying, you know what? My dumb old Ford doesn't work anymore because like, I want one of those. That's when it begins to become covetousness in your heart. And just so that nobody takes me wrong, there's nothing wrong with having nice things provided that we're generous to the things of the Lord. I've heard some really goofy teachings on this stuff. Having nice things is not sin. But if you're being stingy to the Lord who gave you the ability to have nice things so that you could prop up a lifestyle that's above your means that you didn't deserve to live, then that temptation becomes sin. You understand the difference? Having nice things, okay. Being stingy so that you could have nice things you can't afford, not okay. So back to the passage. When Eve saw that the tree was good for food, that's what it initially says in verse 6. That's not sin. It's temptation. She's already beginning to stand on some pretty shaky ground, but it is not sin. When it says next that she notices that it was enticing to the eyes, still not sin. 
She's going one step further down a slippery slope, but noticing, like I just pointed out in my silly examples, the act of noticing in and of itself is not sinful. When it gets to when she saw that the tree was desired to make one wise, boy, she's really close, isn't she? She's in some hot water. But it's still not sin because at any moment leading up to this, she could have turned back without breaking that which God said in Genesis chapter 2. But when she took of the tree and she ate of the fruit, and Adam ate after her, sin entered the world. Up until that point, they could have walked away from this at any time. But when she bit into it and then passed it on to her coward of a husband, and he also ate, we entered the place of no return, and all of the earth and all of its population entered that place with them. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the impact of what happened from eating of the tree, but I'm going to spend an entire week on that next week. So I remember years ago, I was teaching a Sunday school class. And don't you just get the deepest and best theological questions from kids that don't know any better than to think, like, this is embarrassing. I don't know if I should ask this. They just let it blurt out. And then you like, either have to pretend like you know the answer, um, or you could be humble and say, wow, that's a really good question. Let me get back to you. But they said, why is it such a big deal that they ate the fruit? I was like, wow, that's, that's a fantastic question. Well, there's three reasons, really. The first and most obvious is that they directly defied and disobeyed God. That's a really big deal. God offered them all of paradise. He said, look at this. All of this is yours, provided you stay away from one thing, but they couldn't keep their grimy little paws off of the one thing. And a little bit of a tangent, this is super helpful to remember during times of evangelism. We know that Jesus is the only one who kept the law in its entirety, every last one of them. But when most people think of the law, they think of what? The Ten Commandments, right? And Jesus sort of exposed the reality of our hearts if we even thought for a moment that we could be obedient to the Ten Commandments. He said things like, if you look at somebody with anger in your heart, you've already committed murder in your heart. When you look at somebody with the intention of lustfulness, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So if you're sharing the gospel, or perhaps you're here, and you've never put your faith in Jesus, the Ten Commandments were roughly about ten too many for you to be able to obey. So up until this point, there's not ten. There's one commandment. Just don't eat from the one tree. That's it. The one commandment. No more rules, just one law. Just don't eat of the tree. And I would think that it's simple, right? It's not like this thing was a cheesesteak tree. It's not like it's got like fresh baked bread and dripping provolone and you're like, oh Lord, I've never seen a cheesesteak, but I know that I want to run over to Pat's as soon as I leave here and go, because you all know that Pat's in Point Pleasant makes the best cheesesteaks, right? If anybody says no, you can leave. Um, but I mean, think about this. 
It was fruit. If I was given that commandment, I promise you, I would have become the first legalist. Because I would have been like, you know what, Lord, we're good. Not only will I not eat of the fruit, but I'm going to skip veggies as well, just to be safe. And I say all that kind of poking fun, but mankind was unable to adhere to one law. Aren't you glad that we're saved by Jesus' ability to keep the law on your behalf and not your ability to keep the law? Because if it wasn't like that, we'd be all like, you know what? I don't even like fruit, but the snake told me that I should have it. I'm just going to eat. I mean, the snake talked about it like this stuff's delicious. So now my life is incomplete without it. I didn't consider that part when I thought through. <laughs> the second reason, <laughs> I just grow Sesky out. <laughs> See you later, Pastor. <laughs> the second reason that this was such a big deal was motive. Notice how it repeats in verses 5 and 6 that Eve craved the fruit because it was able to make one wise. Well, where does wisdom come from, according to Proverbs? Anyone want to answer? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Psalm 9.10, or Proverbs 9.10 tells us that. So Eve was slowly (laughs) walking. Thank you. (laughs) Eve's slowly walking away from the Lord here. She wanted wisdom apart from the Lord. She wanted the basis of her wisdom to be something other than what God states is the foundation for wisdom in Proverbs. It's just like Paul says in Romans 1.22, professing to be wise, they became fools. And the third reason that this is such a big deal is we were all in Adam when he fell. Look with me at Romans chapter 5. 12 through 19. We actually have it up here, I believe. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the type of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But the free gift of God is not like the trespass. For if many died through one's trespass, how much more have the grace of God and the free gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many? And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because one man's trespass meaning what we're reading about right here, Adam, death reigned through one man, what we're going to see in the curse through Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. So it says that through Adam, sin entered the entire world for everybody. We were all caught up 
in Adam's genetics, if you want to go that direction. So when his genetics became infected by sin, it was continually passed down to every generation after him. So we were all born into sin. This is the doctrine that's known as total depravity. It does sometimes confuse people. Total depravity does not mean that every single one of you is going to be as evil as you could possibly be at all times, but it does mean that every single one of us was born tainted by sin. And the only way to combat that condition, which we inherited through birth from our forefather, was through a Savior who came to bridge our relationship back to God. I always joke with Marcy and our kids that our kids inheriting the lawyer genes and the Ellis genes really hit the gene pool lottery. I mean, <laughs> they had no say-so in the matter. They didn't choose to be born into a family of psychos. No offense, Mom. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry, that was too far. Um, but in the same way, before we could even do anything right or wrong, we were born tainted by the effects of sin. So now that you have a foundation for why this is such a big deal. So we move on to our text and we see the reaction of Adam and Eve. Look with me at verses 7 and 8. It says, The eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves and loincloths together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So there's four primary reactions to the first sin entering the world. It says their eyes were open, they realized they were naked and unashamed, and they were ashamed. They created loincloths made of fig leaves to try to cover their shame, and they hid themselves from God's presence. So let's tackle these one by one. First, their eyes were open. That obviously means in a spiritual sense. It's not like they were just walking around the garden with their eyes shut before this, playing a big game of Marco Polo in the garden. Um, they craved forbidden wisdom, and they wanted to see the world the way that God sees the world. And there's an interesting consequence of the fall that you have to think about, because wisdom is not a bad thing. In fact, there's multiple Proverbs where we're commanded to pursue wisdom. The book of James instructs us, hey, if you lack wisdom, ask. He wants to give you wisdom. The pursuit of wisdom is not the problem here. Back to the motive. All roads always lead back to the heart. So the seed that was sown here was found back in verse 5 when it says that she saw that it was something to make one wise. Wisdom's not the problem. The problem is they are indirectly and possibly directly questioning whether God is good. Hey, what if God has access to this secret wisdom and he's keeping it from me? If this God is so good, why would God be keeping something from me? Do you think the consequence of that fall still exists today? You bet your sweet bippy it does. They realized next that they were naked and they were ashamed. Think about this. 
Prior to this, there was no shame. Let me just point this out. The point here is not the nakedness. The nakedness ends chapter 2, and then it bookends here in chapter 3. And the nakedness is talking about vulnerability. Well, they never had an issue being vulnerable before this. But now they felt vulnerable, and as a result of their vulnerability, they felt shame. And a bit of a tangent here, but I think it's an important one, but this is why I hate shame-based teaching. And when I say I hate it, I mean when I hear it, I want to hurt the person that's doing it because I hate it so much because shame is a result of sin. How are you supposed to teach people to be free from sin by using a tool that clearly came into the world as a result of sin to try to combat that sin? You understand what I'm saying? That's why shame-based teaching doesn't produce lasting fruit. You know, if I sat up here and just condemned you the entire service, somebody might feel condemned enough to change their behavior for a few minutes. God's not after your behavior. God's after your heart. Get that. If, if there's something to be written on my tombstone someday, that, I try to insert that in every single message. He's not after your behavior. He's after your heart. Change your heart and the behavior changes with it. Change the behavior without changing the heart and all you have is a Pharisee. That's why I hate shame-based teaching. It doesn't work. You can't fight sin with sin. If shame was a result of sin, and if you're trying to teach people to overcome sin, you can't use sin to overcome sin. And we're going to see in a moment, shame actually causes us to run from God's presence where grace actually lifts us up and pulls us into God's presence. Third, they used fig leaves to cover that shame. This is mankind's first attempt at creating religion. Rather than pursuing a relationship with God to try to cover their sin by His grace, they tried to cover their shame with a man-made plan that they concocted, and it didn't work, and it's the same reason that religion doesn't work today either. I did a retreat several years back, and all the messages were based on Genesis chapter 3. And my primary point was either you're allowing the Lord to cover your sin, or at best, you're sowing fig leaves together. And we examine the various types of fig leaves that people try to string together to cover their sin and their shame. Man-made religion, selectively choosing what parts of the Bible they want to obey, creating their own standards of morality, self-esteem culture, willful blindness, denial. I mean, you could keep going on. There's a million of them. And I could do a whole message just on the fig leaves that we use to cover the lies that we tell ourselves to try to convince ourselves that the fig leaf is working and that nobody can see that you're walking around with fig leaves on. But there's a problem with fig leaves. They itch. <laughs> I mean, the term loincloths, I'm not trying to get graphic with you, but it means cloth to cover your loins, right? I'm sure that's not a shocker to anyone here. Well, if you've ever seen a fig tree, you know that fig leaves were not intended to make comfortable underwear. And the point is so simple. 
God didn't design you to be covered with fig leaves. God didn't design us to even know what shame was. Yet, to even try to find ways to cover that shame that was never supposed to exist to begin with. I want to ask you a direct question before moving on. Is there anyone out there who knows that you've been running from the will of God and you've been trying to cover it up with fig leaves? I just want to be direct with you. Like, if that's you, you don't have to, like, raise your hand or do anything demonstrative. I'm not going to do an altar call. I'm speaking to your heart. Do you know that you've been running from the will of God and you've been trying to cover it up with fig leaves? And I want to just encourage you with grace. You don't have to live that way. That was part of the package at the cross when Jesus said it's finished. He's saying, take off the fig leaves, man. You have grace covering for you. Do you know what the word atonement means? All it means is a fancy theological word to say covering. He took your fig leaf atonement and he gave you Christ's atonement to cover over that sin. And he offers to take away your fig leaf by exchanging it for Christ's perfect righteousness. The fourth and final point from verse 8 about the immediate reaction of the fall is they hid themselves from the presence of God. Think about how ridiculous this scene is. These people who have never had a reason to be afraid of God are now wearing fig leaf underwear and diving in the bushes. Like, sometimes it's good to just use your imagination and put yourself on the scene as things unfold biblically. They never needed to hide themselves from God. In fact, they have only known running toward God previous to this. But guilt had caused them to run away from God. One of the ways to check your heart to see if you are in denial about covering yourself with fig leaves is a simple question. If you've chosen something contrary to the will of God, is that thing bringing you closer to God? Or is that thing causing you to go diving in the bushes? I've been a pastor long enough where I would say that I've seen and encountered this hundreds of times, maybe even thousands of times, would not be an exaggeration. Somebody is confronted with their sin, and immediately they point to their fig leaf that they've sown to try to justify it. Whether it be sex before marriage or dating a non-Christian and feeling like, hey man, I just got the, I've got this under control. Or living way beyond their means and saying, you know what, I really can't be generous towards the things of God because for every dollar I get in, I spend a dollar and ten cents of it on myself. That's a fig leaf. I could tell you that 100% of the time that the person ends up taking their silly fig leaf and hiding from God, they end up not coming around the people of God because they feel judged, even though nobody judged you. You ever see that happen? Man, I can't be there because people are going to judge me. Yet then you walk in and people hug you and they say, oh, I missed you. It's so good to see you. That was just Satan having a field day with your fig leaf. That's all it was. Or they're not reading their Bibles because they know that their Bible is going to tell them things that they don't want to hear and they don't plan to obey. Or they're hiding their sin, which is crazy because even if you're hiding it from everybody else, God still sees you over there hiding in the bushes with your fig leaves on. Or they take the tactic of the serpent. Is this really that big of a deal? 
Well, again, simple question. If it's not a big deal, why are you hiding it? If something's not a big deal, why aren't you shouting it from the rooftops? Why aren't you just doing it here right in the midst of everybody if it's not a big deal? Why are you running from God rather than running towards him? Just a thought. And the beauty of God's grace is you don't have to run away. And we see that in the very next verse. So as we go on in our passage, I'm just going to let you guys know now, this passage is pretty critical, so I'm going to go a few minutes long. So it is what it is. Um, In verse 9 it says, But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And let me point out the obvious. God's not unaware of where they were, right? At any point, he could have been like, dude, I see you over there hiding in the bushes. Your leg is sticking out. You're not even very good at hiding. It's funny that people always think that they're better at hiding their sin than they actually are. God sees you. God knows what's up in your heart. So why did they choose? Why did God choose to confront them in this manner? What did he mean by it? Well, first of all, he's pointing out, this is out of character for you. You don't usually hide from me. Why are you doing this? Secondly, he's pointing to the break in fellowship. Hey, we've always had fellowship. Why would you be running from me and avoiding me? And third, and somewhat conjecture, is he's giving them an opportunity to respond to his gracious call. If you're somebody who's been sitting around in your fig leaf underwear and hiding, I want to ask you the same question. Where are you? How's your heart doing? Why are you withdrawing yourself from God's presence? Why are you hiding from the people of God? Why do you think that you would ever be happier? This is, the, this is really it. This is the $10,000 question here. Why do you think that you would ever be happier hanging on to something that makes you flee from God's presence than releasing it and fleeing to God's presence? So let me just give you a reminder of his amazing grace. He died so that you don't have to live in shame. He bore that shame on the cross on your behalf. He died so that you never have to run from him. If you're sitting there and you're eating from the troughs of the pig slop like the prodigal son, at any point you could say, the slaves in my father's house are better than this. And you can get up and, what did the father do in that story? He ran to the boy. The boy was saying, I I just want to go and be treated as a slave. And he says, welcome back, son. I've missed you. Let's throw a party. Why would you think that you would have to hide from a God that wants to throw a party when you return to him. So let's close today's message by seeing how they responded, and then we'll see how God responds. So we know that Adam passed along his genes because he clearly passed along each of these responses. Look at verses 10 through 14. It says, And he said, I heard the sound of you walking in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree that I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman that you gave me. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And then God curses the serpent in verse 14. So his first response is one of fear in verse 10. I have a newsflash for you. People who are not doing anything wrong do not need to walk in fear. I've used this illustration before, but in my criminal past, before I knew Jesus, I was 
really convinced. This isn't me being Eric joke time. I was really convinced that the police would gather around and, and have hatch plots to come and get me. I, I thought that like it was something personal with me that they were trying to come and get me. And even when they would like pull me over, I would say, you're just trying to stereotype me, man, because I have dreadlocks and Grateful Dead stickers on my VW bus. Man, you know, and <laughs> you remember that car. That thing, was, that thing was tight. Had nothing to do with the fact that every time they guessed that I was up to something, they just happened to be right. <laughs> Miraculous, right? But they were out to get me. And this funny thing happened. I stopped acting like a criminal thug. And guess what happened? The police stopped plotting to come and get me after that. I rarely use the New Living Translation, but I think they nail Romans 13.3 right on the head, so I'm going to use that. For the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but in those who are doing wrong. Would you like to live without fear of authorities? Do what's right, and they will honor you. You know, God has blessed us with this thing called a conscience that's able to tell right from wrong and feel things like guilt and fear when we are choosing to walk in what's wrong. Some people, through constant presence of noise, have been able to teach themselves to drown out their conscience. And trust me, that is not what you're looking for. So God gives another opportunity for grace in verse 11. He said, who told you these things? He's gradually calling them out. How did you figure out that you were naked, Adam? At the heart of the question is, Adam, this has always been the case. Why is it only now becoming an issue? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And a little side point, I love how God actually repeats the term eat here twice in the Hebrew because it actually reinforces the folly of Eve's words prior in the passage, repetition of God's words, particularly back to back with one another, is never by accident. So it's like he's giving Eve a chance to go back and take him at his word. I originally told you, do not eat of the tree. You turn this into do not eat and do not touch of the man-made fig leaf religion that you were trying to create. So God repeats eat twice to say, Eve. I said, don't eat it. Did you eat it? And he's trying to remind them, let's get back to my word here, people. And then they begin their master tactic, their trump card, if you will. And I don't mean that as a double entendre, blame shifting. And the Lord addresses the man. He says, what's up, Adam? How did we get into this mess over here? And Adam totally, with perfect precision and skillfulness, shifts the blame. And first, he tries to blame his wife. Well, it wasn't me. It was the woman you gave me, Lord. She's the one who took it, and she gave it to me, and I ate. And funny that he doesn't see that there's multiple times in there where he could have chosen to respond differently. He could have stood up and been a man at any point in this passage. He could have said, just because she took it doesn't mean that I had to take it. Nobody's twisting his arm to eat it just because she took it. And it should also be noted that he's actually blaming the Lord for his sin. It's the woman you gave me, Lord. If you didn't give me this woman, then I wouldn't have eaten. So Lord, when you look at it that way, isn't it kind of your fault? That's, that's shisty, right? 
So then the woman takes the same approach. My fault? How could it be my fault? It was the serpent you created. The talking snake told me to do it, and we always have to listen to talking snakes. So he tricked me, and I ate, not because I wanted to, even though verse 6 says that she was already lusting after this, and it was a delight to her eyes, and she desired of the fruit. Nope, it was because the snake made me do it. It's like the old church lady from the Saturday Night Live skits, right? The devil made me do it. Well, he practically shoved it down my throat. What could I have possibly done? I had no other recourse. Sometimes we look at ancient people and we think that we've advanced so far. Brothers and sisters, we still do the same thing. My week would not be full of pastoral counseling through the week if we did not do the same thing. Blame shifting is still the number one thing that people do to try to avoid taking responsibility. Well, I stopped showing up at my community group because that guy's a jerk. I stopped having fellowship with other believers because they're all a bunch of hypocrites. I lash out and say mean things because they made me do it. I act like a total tool on Facebook because I need some kind of pressure outlet, right? I can't possibly tithe because I spend all of my money on me and there's nothing left over to give to the Lord when I'm done spending on me. You do the math. How would you expect me to do it? I can't possibly get involved in a community group or serving because I'm way too busy devoting all of my time to myself. I can't release my bitterness towards my family because they still refuse to take responsibility for their actions. So maybe when they take responsibility for their actions, then I'll release my bitterness, even though Hebrews says, do not let even a root of bitterness spring up within you. It's not my my fault that I drink too much. You're the one that made me Irish, Lord. <laughs> I have a piece of advice for you the next time you try to pass the buck. Just be honest. I stopped obeying God's word because I felt like it, because it was no longer convenient for me to obey it, and I didn't feel like obeying it any longer. Don't try to pass the blame on to somebody else. In Christ, we have been gifted this precious gift called repentance. At any time, we could take those things and put them on the cross where Jesus sufficiently died for each one of them. And Jesus gave us that gift so that we don't have to try to excuse the inexcusable. In the cross, you will find a grace that's inexhaustible. And lastly, you see how the Lord responds he curses the snake in verse 14, but I'm going to hit on that next week. And then he says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He gives the first ever gospel message. And, and I'm just going to crush on this next week, so I don't want to spend too much time on it. But he's saying, hey, serpent, your days are numbered. I am going to send a mighty one. And yeah, you might inflict some damage, but he is going to crush your head for now and forevermore. I am sending the one who will reverse the curse. And that person's name is Jesus, and he's been reversing the curse ever since. So I want to ask you, brothers and sisters, how is Jesus reversing the curse in your life? So some application questions. Are there ways that you're flirting with temptation and hanging out on the doorstep of sin? Are you sewing fig leaves together 
rather than doing what is your right as a child of God and taking those things to the cross? Do you see God as one that you can run towards? Or does guilt cause you to feel like he's someone that you need to hide from and run away? What could you possibly hope to achieve from running away from God? Can you take responsibility for your sin rather than blame shift because you believe that the gospel is big enough to completely cover over the entirety of your shame? And are you allowing Christ to bear your shame, take your fig leaves, and do you understand that there is nothing that you could ever do that could keep you from being able to run to your heavenly daddy and receive his all-sufficient grace? Let me pray. God, thank you that your grace is big enough to cover my shame, our vulnerability, the areas that we feel like we have to hide. You see them. And your word even told us that it was when we were enemies that you saved us. How much more now that you call us sons and daughters. Let us leave and believe that today. In Jesus' name, amen. So.